0: This is an important issue because the Bible is being attacked in a lot of different ways, you know, I have seen Josh McDowell. He's talked about the reliability of the New Testament and, and how when you look at the Bible from a literary perspective, it is more accurate than any ten pieces of ancient literature combined. You can read his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Great stuff. And you can see the Dead Sea Scrolls. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, it showed the Bible to be accurate, like 98.6% identical. And that little bit that was different... Nothing that changed meaning. You might say uh, like the favor, F-A-V-O-R or F-A-V-O-U-R. So those type of differences were seen, but nothing that changed the meaning. And so when we look at the reliability of the New Testament from a literary perspective, uh, it is, it's solid. You can't say, oh, that was written by men, or oh, it's been corrupted, all these different translations. You can't say that. God's word talks about the inspiration of scripture. He's talking about the originals. You can even look at the number of copies of the Bible that have been found throughout uh, the ancient histories. As a matter of fact, do you know that if all the Bibles would be burned in the world today, you could still put it back together simply by looking at people who quoted the scriptures throughout history? It's just everywhere. And so to say that the Bible has been corrupted just doesn't stand uh, against criticism. The numbers of copies of the scripture are unbelievable. Over 25,000 archaeological sites have been found to support the scripture as well. So it doesn't matter where we're looking, whether it be from a literary perspective, a scientific perspective, an archaeological perspective, it all comes back to, hey, this is a trustworthy book. One of the things Josh McDowell talked about is he said, if you look at these ancient books, you can go in, in universities... And you can actually study Caesar's Gallic Wars and get a Ph.D. on it. And when you read those things, they take these things as historical fact. Yet do you know, you've got a thousand year span from the time it was there till it was written. A thousand years. Do you know how corrupt things can get in a thousand years? Tacitus, Pliny, Herodotus, all of these you can see are a long ways away from the actual person's life. Aristotle, 1,400 years, the closest manuscript. The Bible, 100 years. Within 100 years from the time that Jesus walked this earth, you had everything written down. And so even from that perspective, you say, wow, this Bible, it must be reliable. There's something to it. The numbers of copies, as I said, Caesar's Gallic Wars, 10 copies. That's it. And yet you can get your Ph.D. off of 10 ancient manuscripts. And we call it historical fact. You can look at Plato, 7. But you look at the Bible, 14,000. 14,000 know, manuscripts to compare, to make sure that things are accurate, they didn't get messed up. So I would say we're dealing with a reliable book here. So there's all kinds of people trying to discredit the Scriptures, to discredit Genesis especially. Why? Well, I think Luke gives us that answer. It says this, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one would rise from the dead. In chapter 17 there. Now, who wrote Genesis and Exodus? Moses. You hear what he's saying? If you can't believe Moses, if you can't believe Genesis... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you're not going to believe in the resurrection. If you can't believe the beginning, you're not going to believe the end. And so that's one reason why I think it's important for us to defend Genesis and Exodus. Because if you're going to throw those things out, it all goes away. That's the foundation. You get rid of a foundation, the structure comes down. And so there is a a huge push To discredit the reliability of Scripture from an archaeological perspective, as you will see. Now keep in mind, archaeology, just like any scientific data, has to be interpreted. Really, 10% of archaeology is data. 90% is interpretation of that data. You know, I've been to Israel a few times, and when I go over there, it's amazing to me the difference in interpretation, from one trip to the next, from one tour guide to the other. And they all presented as fact. Oh, this is exactly what's happening here. This is why it was. But then the time before I was there, I heard something completely different. Because the the data has to be interpreted. I always think, man, can you imagine if they found our little CD-ROMs, you know, uh, a thousand years from now buried and they find... What would they say these things were? Mirrors? You know, toys for kids? What, What would they say they are? You have to interpret that stuff. And so, 90% of archaeology is interpretation. When we come to the Egyptian things, there were many kings, many pharaohs, and what they would do is they would record things on their wall to give us history. Now, history is better than digging up archaeology and trying to interpret it. Now, even history can be twisted and you know, have different uh, perspectives. But nonetheless, history is a good thing, and they recorded these things on the walls. They told about their buildings, the things that they would construct, the battles that they would fight. They even would build statues of themselves so that we could even see, in many cases, what they looked like. Okay, the early Polaroids, on the shoulder, they have these things called cartouches. It's basically their name. So we don't even have to guess who it is. It tells us who it is. If you go to Egypt, you can actually buy cartouches with your name in Egyptian hieroglyphs. And so a lot of information is pretty good when we look here in the past. They would write on these obelisks as well, these huge pillars in the sky. These here are two of them that are in the temple of Karnak. They're in Luxor, very large. I'll show you some pictures of them coming up as well. They would write on their tomb walls of the things that they did throughout their lifetime. The problem was, for a long time, nobody could read or understand what they wrote because nobody could read Egyptian hieroglyphs and understand it. Well, Alexander the Great, as you're going to see, comes in and conquers Egypt in 322 B.C. And what he did then is he recorded the Egyptian language on something called the Rosetta Stone. Have you ever heard of the Rosetta Stone language learning program? It's named after this stone that Alexander the Great had written down on. Because what happened is this. There are three distinct layers on this stone. Three different languages, all saying the same thing. So this was a key to understanding things. In 1799... Napoleon's French soldiers went, they found this in Fort Rashid, they called it. He didn't know what it said. There was Greek on there, and then there was an Egyptian hieroglyph, and then Egyptian demotic it's called. Now, we could read Greek, but they didn't really understand that it was saying the same thing. So even in 1799, they found this stone, they thought it was pretty cool, but they didn't do anything with it. It wasn't until 1822 that there was a guy, Jean-Francois, he was the first one to decipher the Rosetta Stone. 1822, that's not very long ago. Only since 1822 have we been able to read Egyptian hieroglyphs, the Egyptian language. And even then, one man. So, we haven't been able to understand the language very long. So this is really a pretty new Uh, area of study, relatively speaking. So from then on, we were able to read these tombs, read what was on their names, on their tomb walls and on their buildings and everything else. One of the things that kind of got us off to begin with is Jean-Francois interpreted this little stone here saying, Judah, the kingdom. And so he thought this particular pharaoh, Shoshank, was fighting with the Israelites, particularly the tribe of Judah. Again, he was the only one that could read this. Nobody could really question it. He's considered the father of Egyptology. And it was an enemy ring that on this stone that he read this. And this is what he said. He thought that Jerusalem had been overcome by Shishak of the Bible because Shishak is mentioned in the Bible. But he said Shishak must be this Shawshank guy. Today, however, we have more people who have studied this language. They can now read it. And we've discovered he was wrong in interpreting it that way. Today, we say it says, hand of the king, not Judah the kingdom. And he lists these enemies that were won by his hand, by Shawshank here. The wall he read describes the northern kingdom of Israel being attacked. Jerusalem is the southern kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem isn't mentioned on this stone at all. Yet, the Bible tells us that Shishak came up against Jerusalem. So, really, even what the Egyptian record was saying compared to the Bible didn't match up. He just thought these words are similar, so it must be. And so, when he set the timeline, it messed everything up. And I want you to understand something. Archaeology... You've probably heard that archaeology goes against the scriptures, time-wise. They tell you that uh, Jericho is 9,000 years old. They're going to tell you that there are so many problems. As a matter of fact, Solomon, according to the Bible, was very rich. So was David, right? No, according to archaeology, when David and Solomon are alive, it's a time of poverty in Israel, utter poverty. Your Bible's wrong. This is why this is important, guys, is because we have people telling us all these different facts and they say, oh, your Bible's wrong. How about we say, maybe it's not the Bible that's wrong, but our understanding of the facts that are wrong. But what happened is this timeline caused everything to be off and so there's so many contradictions that people think that there are the Bible's not accurate, basically. We're going to correct that timeline here tonight time magazine said this on the cover is the bible fact or fiction when you read on the inside it says this there are parts of the old testament where the evidence is contradictory or still absent including slavery in egypt and the existence of moses time magazine is telling you we don't even know if israel was ever in egypt let alone if moses was a real person or not because your bible you can't trust that In other words, there is no evidence of all these stories you've read growing up about the Exodus, Moses, and the Ten Commandments. That is all make-believe fairy tale. There's no scientific evidence to support that or archaeological evidence. Well, let me show you this traditional timeline. There are 31 dynasties from the beginning of the Egyptian dynasty, the first one, to the end. Now, I'll explain how we know that in a little bit. The problem is, is, you know how long is each dynasty? Traditionally, they say that it's about 3100 BC when the dynasty started. I'm going to show you it's probably 2100 BC. But traditionally, this is what they're going to tell you. 3100 BC to 332 when Alexander the Great conquered Egypt and put an end to their dynasties. Now, If that's the case, I would say almost every scholar, theologian would agree that the exodus took place around 1445 B.C. 1445 B.C. puts the exodus then in the 18th dynasty of Egypt. All right? Now this is as complicated as it's going to get. If you can just stick with me for a moment on this. This is a very important part. Here's the problem. If the exodus took place in the 18th dynasty, do you know that Luxor was the capital in the 18th dynasty for Egypt, not Memphis, as the Bible seems to indicate? So that's a problem. Luxor is also 1,800 kilometers, or basically 1,100 miles away from where Moses is at. So are you telling me that Moses went 1,100 miles back and forth to talk to Pharaoh from Goshen? back and forth, 1,100 miles? I don't think so. This seems to be suspect already, doesn't it? The facts aren't agreeing. Not only that, but the 18th dynasty is the most recorded of all the dynasties ever. I mean, if a pharaoh sneezed, it was almost recorded. Everything was written down. We have more in the 18th dynasty recorded than all the others put together. There's that much stuff. Every detail. So wouldn't you think that there'd be some evidence that, you know... Israel was in Egypt? Some evidence that, you know, there was a uh, a ten plagues, water, the Nile River turning to blood, a seven-year famine, something? This is probably the second highest-ranking Egyptologist in the world. And here's what he says. says, the Egyptians never mentioned bad things in the reliefs of their temples. And that is true. In archaeology, we see that people kind of twist things to make themselves look better. We see it all the time in Assyria, everywhere. But, you can usually read between the lines. For example, we have what's called the Lachish tablet. And on the Lachish tablet, it records when Hezekiah was uh, trapped in Jerusalem, when the Assyrians came and camped around there. And then, God, you know, basically delivers him after Hezekiah prays and 185,000 of the Assyrian army are dead the next morning. They wake up and they're like, oh my goodness, their army's dead. So the general goes back home and he's killed. The Lachish tablets tell. He says, you know, we conquered Lachish, we conquered all these cities, and then we went and we locked up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. So not only does archaeology support what the Bible's saying, but it just shows us that you can read between the lines that he wasn't able to conquer Jerusalem, he was only able to lock Hezekiah up for a while. No mention of 185,000 people dying, but again, reading between the lines. You know, I'm going to show you a a trick here. I, I need a volunteer. I have a volunteer. Go ahead, come on up here. I have some cards, and really the card's don't make a difference, uh, it's more about what we're going to do with the card here. I'm going to give you this, and why don't you sign your name on the back of this card here, okay? It's a three of diamonds, but it, like I said, doesn't really matter. Just go ahead and sign your name on that. Okay, so we have our name on this card. I'm going to set these others down. What we're going to do is I want you to hang on to this card. Go ahead and set your pen down there. This might be hard for some of you in the back to see, but just kind of hang on to this card just like that. What I'm going to do, actually, you know what? I'm going to do it this way. Let's do it upside down for you. Okay, we're going to take this card, and I am going to bend it just like this. Get a good crease in it here if I can, because we want to... back and forth. Okay, now I'm going to take and... Rip it. Just like that. Okay. Go ahead and you can take that last little chunk and rip it right down. There you go. Okay. So now, keep. go ahead and keep that there. Actually, what I want you to do with that strip there, go ahead and hand it to me. Or What I'm going to do is just so you know that that's the part that goes to this card. Stick it right here in my teeth for me. Okay. There you go. Good. Now. <laughs> You see, it's broken, isn't it? It needs to be restored. So, I have some magic spit. Okay. All right. Watch here. There we go. Is that your card? Okay, so we restored the card, right? With some magic spit. All right, thank you. That's all I needed. You can keep the card if you want, but... (laughs) You see, obviously that's a fairy tale. You know it's a trick. There's nothing to that. Well, this is the kind of thing that happens, is we know the timeline is broken. And we don't need any magic spit... All we need to restore this timeline is the Bible and to take the Bible seriously. Problem is, is people aren't looking at the Bible seriously when it comes to archaeology and science and things like that. We just think it's a nice book for theological things and warm fuzzies, but when it comes to real life, we have to get the answers from the archaeologists and and the other scientists and whatnot. No, you, you need to take the Bible seriously. And so... To restore this timeline, it doesn't take magic, it takes faith in God's word. And if you'll simply do that, you're going to see that things are going to be restored perfectly. Because there are other problems with Ramses here. Do you know that he lived in his 80s? He ruled 67 years, yet Ramses is the pharaoh of the 18th dynasty that supposedly died in the Bible, in the, in the Exodus, right? Well, the pharaoh of the Bible had to reign less than 40 years because, remember, he was the one who sought to kill Moses. Moses ran away for 40 years and comes back. There's no way that the pharaoh of the Bible in, in the time of the Exodus could be Ramses simply because he reigned too long. Not only that... But the timing makes everything wrong. Like Jericho, it becomes 9,000 years, like I said, that uh, Israel is in poverty at the time of David and, and Solomon. And I've seen Ramses. I've seen him twice. I saw him in Chicago. I saw him in Egypt. I've seen his mummy. Yet the Bible tells me Pharaoh and his army are buried in the Red Sea. If I have faith in the Bible... I'm telling you that there's something wrong with their interpretation that Ramses is the guy. If you saw uh, the movie Prince of Egypt, you know, Ramses was was, uh, Moses' brother, and then a big wave throws him up on the hill, and he's like, Moses! No, if you read Exodus, it doesn't necessarily say that Pharaoh died, but you know what Psalm says when it talks about this? It says Pharaoh and his army were buried in the Red Sea. It can't be him, not only from a perspective of the historical and without the Bible, but even from the biblical interpretation. Yet, during his time as well, there is absolutely no evidence in all this recorded stuff in the 18th dynasty that there were Semitic or Israelite people in Egypt. That's why Time Magazine keeps telling you there is no evidence. Your Bible is not accurate. There are other problems as well. 1 Kings 6.1 says Solomon built a temple 480 years after the Exodus. That's 200 years before Ramses with the biblical timeline. It doesn't fit. And there's no collapse of Egypt in his time. Don't you think the Exodus was going to be a pretty major thing when your entire army is destroyed? Yeah. Now keep in mind... The scriptures are recording this event not for us to understand who the pharaoh of the Bible is. So these details aren't so important. This is about the God of the Exodus, not the pharaoh of the Exodus. And so the focus of scripture isn't on who the pharaoh is, it's on who God is. He is God of gods, king of kings, lord of lords. And that's why there were judgments upon these false gods of the Egyptians. Exodus 1.11 says... So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. This is one reason why people in the Bible today are saying, yeah, see, Ramses must be the one because Ramses is mentioned in Exodus. However, I believe this is an anachronism. It, I believe that Ramses isn't Ramses. It was what's today called Avaris. Now, that's going to be important because you're going to see some things that go on here in Averis, That Many of the Israelites lived in Goshen and Averus because it says this is the place where the Israelites were, which today is Ramses. I think that's really what it's supposed to say in Scripture and in essence. Why? Let me show you other examples of anachronisms. Dan is mentioned in Genesis 14.14. 14. But Judges 18.29 says the city was called Laish, not Dan, until after the conquest, which is long after Genesis 14 when it's called Dan. So how can it be called Dan if it's not called Dan until later? We see another example. Luz is changed to Bethel in Genesis 28.19, but in Genesis 12.8 and 13, it's called Bethel, even though at the time it's really Luz. Ramses is then probably avarice and he's saying today it's ramses but back then it was avarice we could give you many many examples of anachronisms throughout the scripture deuteronomy credits moses as its author but chapter 34 speaks of the death and burial of moses how can moses write about his own death because what we see in scripture is that this was a compilation of records that were put together at later times, which is why we see so many things like this. To this day, the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle. It is the marker at Rachel's grave, to this day, to this day, that many things were written after the event, and so they were written using today's language, or the language of that day. And so, I think that's why Ramses is mentioned, is because when it was recorded, it was after the 18th dynasty when Ramses was there. So let's restore this timeline. How do we do it? Well, we're going to lose 1,000 years of Egyptian history. Not 3100 B.C. at starting, but 2100 B.C. I believe, though, that it is more likely that if you just lose 1,000 years of history here, it moves 1445 B.C., the time of the Exodus, to right here at the end of the 12th dynasty. Now, how can I justify losing 1,000 years of Egyptian history? Very simple. First of all, how do we know that there were 31 dynasties? Well, there's a guy named Manetho. Manetho was an Egyptian priest. And when Alexander the Great came in and conquered Egypt, he said, I want to know who, who, who are the pharaohs are. Give me the history of Egypt. And you don't tell some guy that just came and conquered you, no. So you're going to give him an answer, even if you have to make up some stuff sometimes. Not saying he did. I'm just saying, this is how we got it. Manetho. So he said there were 31 dynasties. Do you know that we do not have a single copy of Manetho's writings? You know, we have seven of Plato, zero of Manetho. Yet all of Egyptian chronology is based on Manetho. How do we justify that? Well, we have people who quote Manetho, second-hand sources, well, probably not even secondhand, but much down the road. Many historians, some of them are unreliable, and we know they're unreliable. And those sources contradict each other on what Manetho said. The most reliable resources even tell us that Manitho said that many of these pharaohs ruled contemporary. Not one right after the other, but oftentimes two of them together. Ruling contemporary. Now that's huge, because if you just add them up, you're going to get, you know, 3100 BC adding up all those years. You, we know they uh, were conquered in 332, just work backwards. But if they ruled contemporary, you're not going to get back as far. It also just makes common sense to say that there's no way that one pharaoh could rule that. It's about a 12 kilometer width along the Nile that was populated for a distance of 620 miles. Do you really think one pharaoh with his chariot is going to be able to have control of 620 miles? No way. And this is why many of these more reliable sources were saying there was a northern and southern king. All right? And that other sources say that father and son oftentimes ruled together. I'll give you some examples of that as we go. There's another thing. There's something called the TIP. It stands for the third intermediate period. David Roll talks about this in his book here, A Test of Time. Now, by the way, he's not a Christian. There are many secular Egyptologists who are challenging this thing called the TIP. The third intermediate period is dynasties 21 to 25, and they're saying it didn't exist because there's no evidence it was there. None. If that's the case, it removes about 250 years of history. So... It's easy to justify losing a thousand years of history here by putting some of these pharaohs contemporary, possibly even the TIP not being there. Now that by itself, maybe not a whole lot, but as we correct this timeline to restore it, you're going to see that here, with the Exodus being at the end of the 12th dynasty, now everything makes sense. So let's show you, how this works. Where did the Egyptians come from? Well, obviously they had come from Noah, right? Noah, he had his sons that get off the ark, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Bible tells us they're sons. And we see the sons of Ham are Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. That word Mizraim, that is the Hebrew word for Egypt to this very day. In Egypt, they have the Bank of Miser and all of these kind of things. It is the Hebrew word for Egypt. So we know that the Egyptians came from Ham. The first king as I said was Menes. Eusebius and other historians talk about him. Menes is very close to Mizraim. The pyramids that we think of in Egypt they don't really start till the 4th dynasty. The first dynasty didn't do it, but this is just kind of getting going shortly after the flood. We know that there are some similarities just culturally with what Scripture says as well, embalming practices as an example. Uh, I used to be fascinated that when this, uh, with this kind of thing when I was a kid. You know, you would basically, they take a, a fork or a piece of wire up your nose and they take your brains and everything out through your nose to embalm you. Okay, And then they take your organs out, and they would oftentimes put your organs in a jar and stuff like that uh, to embalm you. Your organs and your brains and all that come out. Well, the whole process, according to Egyptian records, is a 70-day thing, never longer. The fascinating aspect to that is Genesis 50 talks about when Joseph's father dies, they mourn for him. It says that Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father, Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days, that same amount. Now, maybe it's not that, I don't know, but it's an interesting connection there, isn't it? Uh, The third dynasty had the Zoser Pyramid. He would have lived around the time of Terah, Abraham's father. And during those times, we have some of the same Pyramid techniques that are used in burial procedures. They would bury servants with the pharaoh. And they did that also at Ur. So here's a Mesopotamian pyramid in Ur, right here on the upper left. And only the bottom remains of it. On top of that would be another one stepped in a little bit. Well, look at that same kind of design in this pyramid here at Saqqara that this is just one of those. There are pyramids all around the world. It's not just an Egyptian thing. This Zoser pyramid from the third dynasty is 203 feet high, which is small compared to the big one that you're used to seeing, but we'll talk about that here in a minute. But what I want you to see is just the connection between Mesopotamia and Egypt, some of the same styles, some of the same burial methods. Typically, we get the Tower of Babel idea in our head, from that one at Ur. Some people think that this is the Tower of Babel, the Beers Nimrods of, of Babylon. I don't really think so. I think Alexander the Great maybe have taken it down. There was one that had a bigger base that uh, has been taken down stone by stone because they thought there'd be treasure in there and they took it apart and didn't find any. So uh, we don't know. But the idea that slaves were beaten to make these pyramids probably just is not true. There are inscriptions found on limestone walls here of this step pyramid identifying the builders, saying this. It, this is a quote right on the pyramid: "The crew Cheops excites love, or the crew the white crown of Khufu is protected. The crew Sahure is beloved." These people seem to took pride in their work, but we always think slaves did it. I'm sure they probably used some, but nonetheless, these people were taking pride in what they were doing. Uh, we have Seneferu, the first king of the fourth dynasty. Uh, he's supposedly one of the greatest pyramid builders of all time. He built this medium pyramid. Uh, only the square core of it stands today. Everything else you can see has disintegrated around it, around its base. He also has a second pyramid. It's called the Bent Pyramid. They often say that he, they kind of messed up, so they had to correct it. What I want to point out with this one, on the northeast corner, it says the 21st year of Seneferu. Halfway up, it says 22nd year of Senefru. Okay, You can see about how many blocks are in there. That meant a block that weighs two and a half tons would be laid every 20 seconds, 12 hours a day to get that done. That is incredible. We couldn't do it today. Even with our cranes and everything like that, we couldn't do it. Here's his third pyramid. It's called the Red Pyramid. Um, you can kind of see inside of it there as well. His son, Khufu, built this big pyramid in the late 1800s. Time-wise, that's important because it is possible Abraham maybe helped bring some of this information to the Egyptians. You know that bent pyramid. Maybe it is that they messed up. I don't know. But after the bent pyramid comes this one, which is perfectly aligned. Josephus tells us this, that Abraham communicated to the Egyptians arithmetic and delivered to them the science of astronomy for before Abraham came into Egypt they were unacquainted with those parts of learning for that science came from the Chaldeans into Egypt. And the timeline, with the correct timeline, is perfect with this. Not only that, but we know because Babylon and Ur has been excavated that they have found that they were more mathematically advanced than anybody else Ur was the very place that Abraham grew up, we have found archaeological evidence of Pythagoras' theorem and all kinds of things. That They were very advanced in math. So, Josephus, a historian around the time of Christ, says Abraham brought some of that information in. True or not, we don't know. That's Josephus, but it's interesting. We know here as well, this uh, Cheops pyramid, Herodotus recorded it took three monthly shifts of 100,000 workers in each shift, 20 years to build it. He said they used all kinds of levers and things like that to make these two-and-a-half-ton stones uh, get put in place. Some of them are up to 15 tons. But uh, if 2.3 million blocks are in this, which is what they estimate, that's 12 hours a day for 20 years. 26.3 stones would need to be laid every hour or just under two minutes each. So pretty incredible technology going on there. Some think that they used mud bridges or ramps to go up. We don't know for sure, but that's when some think. Uh, Here we see the Khufu Pyramid. uh, 2,300,000 stones. And some of them weighing up to 15 tons. Here's the original entrance here on the left. Then you can see a tomb robber down below that that somebody tried to break into it. Now I've been inside this pyramid here which is the one that people typically think of there. It's just right on the edge of Cairo, and all the pictures show you, you know, it seems like it's out in the middle of nowhere. No, you know, you're at the pyramids, and there's the city. So it's just the angle you take the picture of. Anyway, this is just kind of a review to show you some of the pharaohs that were ruling in these early dynasties. I'm not going to focus too much on them. What I want to get to is the 12th dynasty here. And what we see with this 12th dynasty is the time of Joseph. Do you remember when Joseph was kind of estranged from his brothers? His brothers are out by the sheep. His dad wants him to go check on them. So he goes and he is thrown into this cistern here in Dothan. Well, he's taken out, sold to Midianite traders, which take him then to Egypt and he is sold. Right Now, I'm not saying that this is the cistern he was thrown in, but this is archaeologically, a cistern in Dothan. I don't believe it dates to the time of Joseph, but it gives you a perspective of maybe the type of thing that he would have been thrown into. Well, what happens is, you know the story of Joseph, or if not, go read it in the book of Exodus, but you're going to see in Genesis, um, you're going to see that eventually he becomes second in power to Pharaoh, because he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, When he's in prison, he's brought out of his prison chains and clothes and he's put second in power. Who's that pharaoh? Well, I believe there is a good chance it is this guy here. His name is Sesostris I. This is what he would have looked like. He's often pictured with a shepherd's staff in his hand. Now that's important because Egyptians detested shepherds. It even talks about that in the Bible. They detested shepherds, yet this Pharaoh wanted to be seen as a shepherd of people. And he was a well loved Pharaoh. Matter of fact, you're going to see that his statues always have noses. I'll explain that in a little bit. Okay? But he was well loved, a shepherd of people. Now, the interesting aspect is do you know that his tomb has never been excavated? It's underwater. We would love to see what's in his tomb and the writings on those walls, but nobody has excavated this tomb yet. We know where it's at, but nobody's excavated it. So, the I could be the person. Now, why do I say that? You'll understand in a moment. He built things like this, this big obelisk. It's called the Pillar of On. Do you remember who Joseph married? The daughter of the priest of On. So, Again, it's a god. It could span more times, but it's just an interesting connection. Here's a throne uh, that was from the time of the 12th dynasty here as well. Maybe Joseph sat on something very similar to this. Here's a chariot from the same time period. Joseph would have ridden in something like that. Well, when Sesostris I is reigning, there's a guy named Mentuhotep. And this is a picture of Mentuhotep. It is possible not saying it's a fact, I'm simply saying it's very possible that this is Joseph. Because Joseph was given an Egyptian name. And Mentu-Hotep, there are records that talk about him. Remember the Bible said that only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you, Pharaoh said. That is rare. But look what the Egyptian records say about Mentuhotep. When he also held the office of chief treasurer, as did the powerful vizier, Mentuhotep, under Sesostris I, the account which he could give of himself read like a declaration of the king's power. He was powerful. He goes on, he appears as the alter ego of the king. When he arrived, the great personages bowed down before him at the outer door of the royal palace. The Bible says people bowed down before Joseph. You're not going to bow down before just anybody. Not only that, but this canal is built at the time. Of Sesostris I. Do you know that in Egypt it's called Bar Yusuf? When translated as Joseph's Canal? You ask the natives there, why is this called Bar Yusuf? I don't know. They won't claim that Israel was ever there, but yet this canal is built. During this time, why is it possible to bring water into the city during a time of famine? Quite possible. So here's another picture of the canal. Downstream from the canal, there is a tomb up in these hills from the 12th dynasty. Most of the the middle kingdom here, the 12th dynasty, Egypt was divided into these districts which are called gnomes. You'll see some of that later. These are where wealthy monarchs ruled, kind of lords you might say. Well, all of a sudden, this changes. And all the wealth went from these lords, these gnomes, to Pharaoh. Why? Nobody seems to have an explanation because they won't think biblically. But if you think biblically, doesn't that sound like maybe Joseph's famine policy? Yeah. In these tombs, we have evidence of this as well. Here's some pictures in there. Now, notice the beards. Egyptians didn't have that. These would be what we would call Semitic people. Remember what Time Magazine and all. There's no evidence that Israel was even in Egypt. Uh, It looks like they may have been. Not only that, but they have coats of many colors. (laughs) Sounds to me like, as I said, Joseph's famine policy. In another one of these tombs, there was a man named Ameni here. And you look in his tomb. He was a provincial governor during the time of Sesostris I. And this is what it shows in his tomb. What's it say? No one was unhappy in my days, not even in the years of famine. For I had tilled the fields of the Nome of Ma up to its southern and northern frontiers. Thus I prolonged the life of its inhabitants, preserved the food which it produced. No hungry man was in it. I distributed equally to the widow as to the married woman. Now the question you have to ask is, how did he know that he needed to preserve food to dish it out later? I think the Bible answers that, doesn't it? In Joseph's famine policy. Sounds like they knew it was coming. There's even something called Hungry Walk. South of a swan. On the Nile River. There are 34 vertical columns. And one of them says this. I was in mourning on my throne. Those of the palace were in grief. My heart was in great affliction. Because Happy, the river god. Had failed to come in a time period of seven years. How long was Joseph's famine? Seven years. It goes on. Grain was scant. Kernels dried up. Scarce was every kind of food. Every man robbed his twin. Those who entered did not go. Children cried. Youngsters fell. The hearts of the old were grieving. Legs drawn up. They hugged the ground. Their arms clasped about them. Courtiers were needy. And it goes on. Everybody's in distress. Doesn't that sound like that fits with what the Bible says as well? Remember I said that Ramses was probably Avaris? Here's Avaris right here. We have this interesting rich man's home, you might say. It was a Semitic house. had 12 memorial columns, 12 pillars. And behind the house, this small little burial pyramid. And nobody was buried in it. However, in their home there is also this Egyptian statue. But he had red hair and yellow skin, which is how the Egyptians always portrayed northerners. And he had a coat of many colors. The bones in the tombs of this town as well show that the the town was very prosperous for a while. And then later on, it was filled with bones that were not nourished well. They were malnourished. Now, normal infant death in other tombs in Egypt, you have about 25%. But in Avaris later on here, 50%. All under three months of age. The graves of adults, 60% female, showing there was a reduction in male population. Why would that be important? Well, because who was Pharaoh throwing into the river? The male babies. We'll talk more about that later as well. There's a papyrus in the Brooklyn Museum from the Middle Kingdom, the beginning of the 13th dynasty, and it has a list of slave names. Interestingly, they match up to biblical names of. Israelites. One of them in here, Shipra, one of the Hebrew midwives. So the names seem to match up as well. And most names are also female. So this shows that they weren't just in Goshen, but probably Avaris and also a town called Cahun, which I'm going to talk about as well. In Exodus 1.8, it tells us this. When Joseph died, the Bible says that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph and began to enslave the Israelites. Well, you got Sesostris the first that Joseph is under, right? Joseph dies. Sesostris the second be around, right? Now, years later, there's going to be another guy, Sesostris the third that's going to come about that doesn't know Joseph. Sesostris the second is going to know him. But it's the third not going to know him. Well, here's a statue of Sesostris the third. He looks like a jerk, doesn't he? Yeah, he's got this scowling frown. Notice his nose is broke off. In all the pictures of him, his nose, you're going to see they're broke off. Why? Because when Egyptians didn't like you, they broke your nose off when he died because their, their understanding of the spiritual afterlife is that your spirit would leave your nose and then you could get to the afterlife. If you broke off the nose, the spirit was trapped and for an eternity, basically. So if they didn't like you, they're going to break off your nose. Sesostris, the first, had noses. Sesostris, the third, no noses. He would have been the one to enslave the Israelites. Here's another statue of him, traditional dating. Uh, you can see 1878 BC roughly. But again, we don't believe that's right. He wanted to be portrayed this way. When you made a statue of you, you wanted it to be what people would remember you by. Apparently, he wanted to be remembered as this stern, powerful king because every statue has a scowling frown. His son was named Amenmet the Third. This would have been the one when Moses was first born would have been Amonemet the Third then following this corrected timeline. He ruled for forty six years concurrently with his father Sesostris the Third. Here is a pyramid that Amenmet the Third built, very different than the pyramids you 're used to looking at. Notice. The pyramids you're used to looking at has these two-and-a-half-ton stones, some of them 15 tons. The pyramids that Amenemeth the III built are all made of sun-dried bricks. You can see the straw inside the bricks, loaded with straw. And that's exactly what the Bible says, is that they had to gather straw, the Israelites did for the Egyptians. What for? Possibly these pyramids. So even that fits. Now, there is a tomb of Sesostris. uh, Nearby it is this town called Cahoon. Kind of like Averis, it was inhabited by Semitic people. This is what it looks like today. It doesn't look like much. Because a 100 years ago, it was uh, excavated by a guy named Sir Flinders Petrie. And they weren't as careful about excavations back then as we are today. They would excavate part of the street, and they would just kind of throw everything off to the side. Then they would just simply move over and then throw everything on top of what they just excavated, draw pictures, as you see here. This is a diagram of what they found and what the city looked like. But today, then, it doesn't look like much. So here is one of the streets of Cahun, excavated 100 years ago, over at that now. Well, there's a book called The Pyramid Builders of Ancient Egypt by Rosalie David. Again, not a Christian. But look what she says about this town of Cahun. So much of it is all about this town. It is apparent that the Asiatics were present in the town in some numbers. This may have reflected the situation elsewhere in Egypt. Their exact homeland in Syria or Palestine can't be determined. The reason for their presence in Egypt remains unclear. Can I make a suggestion? They're the Israelites being forced to make pyramids right now, possibly. It just makes sense. But you see, they can't see it. Because they're in the wrong timeline. The reason they say there's no evidence that Israel was there is because they're only looking in the 18th dynasty. Let's get in the right time zone. There's lots of evidence. Not only a seven-year famine, but now we see this strange city where Asiatics live. Do you remember Pharaoh decreed that the baby boys were to be killed, right? Yeah. What do you think the mothers are going to do with those babies when they are thrown into the river? Sayonara, see you later. I'll bet they're going to follow the river. They're going to go along and they're going to wait for that baby to come up on the side and they're going to pick it up and they're going to go home and bury it, don't you think? And if they find somebody else's baby, they do the same thing. Yeah. Do you know, buried in almost every home in the town of Cahoon are these boxes. This is one in the museum today. Inside these boxes are babies no more than three months old. Do you remember how old Moses was when he was thrown into the river? Three months. Now the bones have been reburied and all that. It would be really interesting to find out if they were all males. Here's what Rosalie David says. She says, Larger wooden boxes, probably used originally to store clothing and other possessions, were discovered underneath the floors of many houses at Cahoon. They contained babies, sometimes buried, sometimes buried, two or three to a box, and aged only a few months at death. It just seems to fit. Now the other thing is this. The scriptures tell us that the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Her maidens walked beside the river, saw a basket among the reeds, and they sent her to fetch it. And that's how Moses is drawn out, right? Have you ever asked yourself why Pharaoh would allow his daughter to bring home his enemy? It's not like she's bringing home a puppy. Daddy, can I keep it? This is an enemy, and it would have been clear that this was an enemy. Why would she be allowed to keep baby Moses? Well, do you know that the III's daughter is named Sobek Neferu? And here she is. Her name means beauty of Sobek. They're basically the crocodile god. The records of Egypt tell us that she was barren. She could not have children. You know what the Nile River is to the Egyptians? It's the fertility god named Happy. Do you suppose that a barren woman, especially in a day that children were so important, do you suppose that a barren woman would be going to the fertility god to bathe every day ritually? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's why, because you see, many of these pharaohs, as you're going to see, would tell uh, the the people that they were birthed from the gods. I'll show you a picture later of Happy. Here is one right here, but I'm going to show you another one of him on a birthing stool. The God Happy giving birth to one of the pharaohs. This way, they could kind of claim divinity and power from the gods, and it gave them more respect. So here's a woman who is barren, and happy, the fertility God gives her a child? Could be pretty special. Again, we can't say for sure that's what happened. But it's interesting as we follow the timeline that here's a barren woman. And she's allowed to keep an enemy baby. She rules, Sobek Neferu rules, for four years. Why? Well, there's no heir because the III had no sons. So she ends up ruling. Now Moses would have ruled, but he ran off. He rejected the throne. Forty years later, Moses then comes back to Egypt, and guess who's in power now with this timeline? A guy named Neferhotep I. The beginning of the 13th dynasty, because remember, Neferhotep had no sons. He was the last king before the Asiatics that, we don't know who they were, left the town of Cahun. This is more than likely the Pharaoh that Moses came before and said, let my people go. And Neferhotep said, no. Here's a magician's rod found from the 12th dynasty now in the Liverpool Museum. Remember the snakes that they cast down as well? Well, as we know, that because Pharaoh says no, there are ten plagues that go on. And all these different ones we're not going to go through, but the one that I want to focus on is the last one, the Passover. If you didn't have the blood of that Passover lamb, symbolizing Jesus Christ and his blood shed for you, then the angel of death came and visited your home, and the firstborn died. Well, the crazy thing is Neferhotep I, do you know that his son, his oldest son, never ruled? We know his name, but he never ruled. Why not? <clears throat> do you remember? Even Pharaoh's firstborn son was killed in the Passover. Instead, his second son, Juan Neferhotep, began to rule. His second oldest. And not for long. A papyrus here in the museum in Holland... It's called the admonitions of an Egyptian sage. And it describes what I believe are the exact plagues of Egypt. Again, the secular world, no evidence, because they're in the wrong time zone. But this, at the end of the 12th dynasty, look what it says. Behold, Egypt is fallen to the pouring of water. He who poured water on the ground seizes the mighty in misery. Okay, who's to blame for Egypt has fallen? The guy that pours out water. You remember what Moses did? Poured out water on the ground, it became blood. Take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. Exodus 4.9. Here we see, the heart is violent, plague stalks through the land and blood is everywhere. No, but the river is blood. Does a man drink from it? He rejects it as human. He thirsts for water. Yet Exodus 7 says all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink water from it. Sounds to me like things are matching up. Again, the papyrus Nay, but gates, columns, walls are consumed with fire. Men are few. He that lays his brother in the ground is everywhere. But the son of the highborn man is no longer to be recognized as stranger people from outside are come into Egypt. Yet the Bible says in Exodus 12, at midnight the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. The papyrus says gone is the barley of abundance. Food supplies are running short. The nobles hunger and suffer. Those who had shelter are in dark of the storm. The Bible says all the Egyptian livestock died. The Lord rained down hail on the land. The flax and the barley were destroyed. The papyrus says the slave takes what he finds. Behold, gold lapis, lazuli, silver, turquoise, carnelian, all these precious stones are strung on the necks of female slaves. Wait a minute. The slaves are taking all the Egyptians' gold and precious stones? Yep, that's what the Bible said. Okay? That they plundered Egypt when they left. And not only that, then when the Israelites went out into the desert, God took a lot of that silver and gold and said... Well, he asked the Israelites to give it to him, really, to make the tabernacle. And the same stones that are listed are mentioned there in Exodus 28. The papyrus says, Wailing is throughout the land, mingled with lamentations. Corn has perished everywhere. People are stripped of clothing, perfume, and oil. Everyone says there's no more. The storehouse is bare. It's come to this. The king has been taken away by poor men. Not only does the Bible talk about loud wailing, but it also talks about Pharaoh and his army being destroyed by slaves. Look what Rosalie David says about Cahoon. It's apparent that the completion of the king's pyramid wasn't the reason Cahoon's inhabitants eventually deserted the town, abandoning their tools and other possessions in the shops and houses. They left their tools behind. She goes on. There are different opinions of how this first period of occupation at Cahun drew to a close. The quantity, range, and type of articles of everyday use which were left behind in the houses may indeed suggest that the departure was sudden and unpremeditated. They don't know why. Can I make a suggestion? It's called the Exodus. But yet, you see, they won't even allow themselves to think biblically. And so the Israelites leave... And they cross the Red Sea, probably somewhere right there in the Agaba Gulf. Josephus goes on and he tells us what happens next. He said, there was a king of ours whose name was Timaeus. Under him it came to pass, I know not how, that God was averse to us. There came after a surprising manner, men of a noble birth out of the eastern parts and had boldness enough to make an expedition into our country. And with case, subdued it by force, yet without Hazarding a battle with them. Wow. Didn't even have a battle. How do you take over a country and not have a battle? A world power, even. Well, Josephus says this guy, by the way, he's quoting Manetho here. Manetho really is saying God was angry with us. That's why we fell. And whoever conquered, which you're going to see in a moment, did it without even a battle. Well, you know who it is? The Hyksos. Here, we know very little about the Hyksos. Almost nothing is known about the Hyksos. Now, if you read your Bibles a lot of time, they're going to say that the time of Joseph, the Hyksos were ruling. And the only reason, really, is because it will say that Potiphar was an Egyptian. Why would you have to tell us that? He's in Egypt. So, maybe non-Egyptians were ruling, and Hyksos were non-Egyptians. But again, it doesn't fit the timeline. The corrected timeline, this fits perfect. Menetho goes on to say, They afterwards burnt down our cities, demolished the temples of the gods, used all the inhabitants after a most barbarous manner. No, some they slew, they led their children and their wives into slavery. This whole nation was styled Hyksos. But Cephas says they're the ones that took over without hazarding a battle. And interestingly, we have the next Egyptian pharaoh here with an axe head, basically buried in his skull. And yet the records tell us that this Hyksos king was accusing his Egyptian subjects of, they were building a canal and it was causing the hippopotami to make noise at night and keep him up. So he waged war with them and won. And that seems to be evidence of it. Many people think that the Hyksos were the Amalekites of the Bible. Because they are the first people that the Israelites meet when they leave Egypt. Now imagine this. When you're leaving Egypt, millions, you know, over a million people, probably two million people leaving Egypt. And you meet your first people and they say, what are you doing? We're leaving. They let you go? Oh, no. Well, how'd you go? Oh, let me tell you, our God delivered us. What? How? Oh, he caused this big wave, the walls of the, of the sea parted, buried Pharaoh and his army in the sea. Pharaoh and his army were buried in the sea. Oh, yes, God is great. So there's no army in Egypt. Oh, no, they're gone. Have a nice trip. Guys, come here. Let's go. Do you think maybe that's what happened? We don't know. All we know is we know very little about the Amalekites because God said they were going to be wiped out. And we see that in Scripture, that Samuel told Saul, go and attack Amalek, wipe them out. And that's exactly what happened. They were utterly destroyed, and all the people with the edge of the sword, because God said he would wipe out the memory of Amalek in Exodus 17. No wonder in archaeology we don't know anything about the Amalekites or the Hyksos. Maybe they're one and the same. We have Thutmose I here. He has two daughters, Nefribidi and Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut later becomes the sole ruler of Egypt. There is no further record of Nefribidi. Scholars don't know why. I'm going to make a possible suggestion. She married Solomon. You'll see why. Traditional skeptics say that Solomon was never rich, like I said, because of this wrong timeline. But when we correct it, as I said, it all fits. In the Middle Bronze period, there's a time of affluence and uh, just great prosperity for Israel in Egypt. Here is a tomb of Thutmose. Some pictures of it. Here is a picture of Thutmose himself. Again, the cartouche tells us it is, so there's no question that's who it is. He built this huge pillar, this uh, obelisk 61 feet high, but he also conquered the town of Gezer. Now, Gezer was taken by him and given to his daughter... As a wedding dowry. The Bible tells us in First Kings, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer, burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So we know that the Canaanites were living there. Pharaoh conquers it and gives it to Solomon's wife. The Bible says he even burned it. Burned it to ash. And guess what we see at Gezer? We have found it today. We have excavated it. And there is burned layers, even wheat that has been carbonized and burned has been found there at Gezer, lining up with the Bible's account. And he gave it as a dowry to Nephrobiti. Now, there's no mention in history outside of the Bible of Thutmose I invading Israel, per se, the hill country. However, Gezer, which is in the hill country of Israel, is in a direct path to Syria. And what we do see is that Thutmosis went to attack Syria. In direct line of that, from Egypt to there, would be the town of Gezer. So that's probably when it took place, during his six years of reigning. Thutmosis had no son by his first wife, so he had a second wife, and that son was Thutmosis II, who married his sister, half-sister, Hatshepsut, and then Thutmosis II reigns only for four years. Hatshepsut has no sons, so Thutmosis II has a second wife named Isis, who bores a son named Thutmose III, and he would later become one of the greatest of all pharaohs, however, he was only about 12 years old when he began his reign. So, Thutmose II, his dad, dies. He's still too young, so instead, Hatshepsut reigns In their place. One of the the only women pharaohs. Uh, We have Sobek Neferu who ruled contemporary there a little bit for four years. But this one you can see clearly by the body there. This is a female. This is Hatshepsut. She ruled as a regent for only about seven years. But then 22 years after that she became pharaoh. It is quite possible that she is the queen of Sheba. That came and visited Solomon. For two reasons. One... She heard about the fame of Solomon. And two, she went to see her sister, Ephraim Possibly. Again, we don't know for sure. But the timeline matches up. The Queen of Sheba is mentioned in 1 Kings 10.1. Jesus in Matthew 12 says the Queen of Sheba is the Queen of the South. Well, you look in Daniel 11, you talk about the King of the South. It's identified as the King of Egypt. So the Queen of Sheba, Queen of the South, could... Very easily be the queen of Sheba. Hatshepsut. Josephus says Sheba was the queen of Ethiopia and Egypt. So even history kind of lines up with that. Now, like I said, she looks very female initially. Later on, as she became complete pharaoh, she began to wear the beard of the pharaohs and she had a male body. She didn't look like a woman after that. She built obelisks even bigger than the ones you've seen before. 97 feet. There was one that was going to be 136 feet, but apparently there were some problems with it, and it was never erected up. Here's their 97 foot one, and then Thutmose, this is little 61 foot one after that. You know, they always had to up one, one another. Here she is, sitting on the birthing stool among the gods of Amun and Tut. So the idea was that Amun had occupied her husband's body, and so the offspring was divine. So again, kind of what I had mentioned before. She also built this mortuary temple here from a trip that she took to the land of Punt. Now scholars don't know what the land of Punt is. They have no idea. We don't know what it is. But she has a lot of records telling about this amazing trip to Punt. Here are some pictures of boats going to the land of Punt. Here's some soldiers in the boats as they go as well. Well, 1 Kings 10, 10 says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Most people say that the queen of Sheba is the queen of Marib. Sheba's Buried City is a book that says that it's, she's the queen of Marib, even though there's absolutely really no evidence at all of it. I think the queen of Sheba very well is, as I said, Hatshepsut, because the descriptions of punt are called, this is what she says, God's land. Beautiful land. Other records say it was in Palestine. But Mariba they say, is in Africa. Why do they say Africa? What's the so-called evidence? Because some of the things that she brings back, the pictures, are African trees. African vegetation. Well, Ecclesiastes tells us Solomon was an avid gardener, and he imported trees and apes from Africa. So it doesn't have to come from there because the Bible tells us she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great abundance, and precious stones. The ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of Almalgwood and precious stones from Ophir. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired. When she came, she brought all kinds of spices and things to Solomon, but the Bible says she left with more than she brought. And this is one of her great, I mean, her temple is filled with pictures of stuff like that. And she also, in this temple, has this very unique entrance. The Bible says that she was impressed the way Solomon ascended to the temple. And after she comes home, she builds this mortuary temple, and it has an ascension to the temple that is identical to the Israelite temples. Remember, the temples could have no stairs. All the other ones over there this time period, they have stairs going up to their altars. But she has one that mimics a biblical description. And yet she was impressed with how Solomon ascended to the temple. Again, we we don't know, but it's interesting. Reliefs show piles of frankincense, myrrh, gold, ebony, monkeys brought from the land of Punt. The very thing that the Bible says, apes were brought back, right? So maybe this came from Solomon. Thutmose III grew up, he was about 30 years old when he took over after 22 years of peaceful reign. Hatshepsut just leaves the scene then. And then so her son, Thutmose III takes over and the first thing he does is he goes and desecrates all her images and statues and things like that. He apparently didn't like her very much. But as I said, he becomes one of the mightiest of pharaohs. He had 70 military campaigns, conquered 119 cities. One of his favorites is going to be a place called Kadesh. His statues here in New York City today they moved it. He built four obelisks: one in Egypt, one in London today, one in New York, and one outside of St. John's Church there in Rome. Four hundred and fifty-five tons. It's the biggest one ever made in Egypt. This one here is in Istanbul. Uh, base of it shows papyruses floating it there, so that that's we know how they got there. Here's the one in Rome, one hundred and five feet. And here are some records of his military campaigns that he recorded on his walls. As I said, his most prized one was this place called Kadesh, which very likely is Jerusalem. Because he took away gold shields. And if you recall, the Bible tells us that Solomon had these gold shields when his son Rehoboam is in power, a pharaoh comes and takes these shields away. So he replaces them with bronze ones instead. Well, there's a lengthy description of an attack on a place called Megiddo, not far from Jerusalem, that, this, that, uh, uh, that Moses III is conquering Megiddo. Well, he says that while they're conquering Megiddo, these people of Kadesh come to try and help Megiddo. Well, the Egyptians continue to win, and they shut the gates, and there are people of Kadesh going all over the place, so they pull the people up through ropes and whatnot to get over the wall safely into the city of Megiddo. So all the army of, of Kadesh is now in the walls of Megiddo. He says, Now if only his majesty's army had not given up their hearts to capturing the possessions of the enemy, they would have captured Megiddo at this time, while the wretched enemy of Kadesh and the wretched enemy of this town were being dragged up hastily to get them into the town. What they did instead is they went after the loot than the people. The reason that's important is because the Bible tells us in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's house, took away everything. He also took away the gold shields. Now there's no record of the Bible of Shishak fighting Jerusalem. It just says that Shishak took the stuff. Maybe because the people of Jerusalem were at Megiddo, locked up in the city... And then, just like he says, they went after the loot and took the stuff from Kadesh without having to fight for it. You see, Kadesh is the Hebrew word for holy. As a matter of fact, the Bible even calls Jerusalem Kadesh at times, the holy city. Daniel 9, Nehemiah 11, Isaiah 48. So it's not a stretch to say Kadesh is the holy city, Jerusalem. Because on the walls then, that he builds Thutmose III. He has these pictures of his conquering of Megiddo and Kadesh. And guess what he shows here? Look. 300 gold shields. Not 298, not 302, 300 gold shields. The exact number the Bible records. Not only that, but something that almost looks like the Ark of the Covenant. Not saying it is. We have... Something that looks just like the bronze altar. Another thing that looks like a menorah table. And two gold doors are mentioned. And <laughs> the Bible talks about the temple doors being overlaid with gold. So quite possibly Pharaoh Shishak mentioned in the Bible that took the stuff from Jerusalem under Rehoboam is Thutmose the It just seems to make sense. There are other problems here too. Some people say, like I said, Shishak is Sheshank of the 22nd dynasty. He left a list of cities on the south wall of the Temple of Karnak, as did Thutmosis. But there's no mention of Jerusalem or Kadesh. Thutmosis did mention it. Plus, some of the cities mentioned by Shishank ceased to exist 400 years before he was there. So it can't be Shishak. Bottom line. Amenhotep II Succeeded Thutmose III, he's pictured here. Up front, the cow, which is a god, is protecting him. And behind, underneath here, you can see that he's receiving nourishment from the gods. Again, this is their way of kind of showing divinity and power. Zerah, the Ethiopian, is mentioned here in 2 Chronicles 14. He was defeated by King Asa of Judah. So there's a good chance that this is that pharaoh. Asa had an army. Then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, it says here in 2 Chronicles. Where the word Ethiopian comes from Cush, meaning southern Egypt or Sudan. So during this 18th dynasty, the capital of Egypt was in Luxor in southern Egypt. So the very word Ethiopia, uh, the Ethiopian king, would be an Egyptian king. And so that also matches up. Uh, Thutmose fourth. He left Estella between the paws of the Sphinx and he was recorded how he had a dream and the Sphinx told him, the god, that he was supposed to remove the sand from his feet because it was stifling him. And so there is a big plate there that was between the feet of the Sphinx that Thutmose the fourth put and he has the sun disc, a sun god on there. So he kind of introduces the, the sun god, um, not that it wasn't there before but really starts to, to uh, magnify him. So his mummy is also very emaciated, suggesting that he had some disease or something like that. Amenhotep III follows him, and he's also known as Amenhotep the Magnificent. You're going to see that many of these pharaohs have different names, uh, more than one name at times, because sometimes they would change it based on the gods and the gods that they would you know, start worshipping or stop worshipping and that type of thing as well. There are more statues of his wife than any other person outside of nefertiti his mother acted as a regent for the first six years of the 38 that he reigned but he also had a thousand wives bible critics mock people who say that solomon oh he couldn't have a thousand wives yet they don't shed one you know comment about the fact that this guy had a thousand wives doesn't make any sense it's very credible his mother is pictured here. He had a very good relationship with his mother. She would be with him in many of the statues and that type of thing as well. Here's a huge statue of Amenhotep III. If you look on this picture, you can't see it on the screen very well, but there's a person standing in front just to show you the great size of it. But he put his mother at his feet on the side of one of these huge statues. So it just show that she had a, a good relationship with her son there. Next was Amenhotep IV. He worshipped only the sun god. And he became the first monotheistic pharaoh. Now the secular world says this is how Israel got to the idea of worshipping one god. They stole it from this guy. Okay, It's the exact opposite. First of all, the Israelites have already been in Egypt worshipping one god long before this. More than likely, this guy remembered the stories of the Israelites. Again, they always try and twist it around. There are many statues of him worshiping Aten, the the sun disc, because he began to worship only the sun god. His grandfather is the one that kind of started this Aten. His father worshiped him, but then this guy really made it the primary god. Radically changed the religious view of the Egyptians, emphasizing the sun god worship. In the fourth year of his rule, he changed his name even to Akhenaten to get rid of Amen or Amun out of his name. So he named himself that. The statues of him, he always has these big lips and a protruding belly. So if you ever see him, he's very unique compared to all the others. This is the one that worshipped only the sun god. This one shows him with no clothes or genitals or anything like that. So, of course, the gay community. He must have been gay. Well, he had six daughters. I, I don't think that's the case. His wife is Nefertiti. She was very beautiful they think she was blind in one eye, in her left eye, because the statues of her have one eye missing. He was succeeded by his brother Tutankhamun, King Tut. You probably remember that one. He's kind of the most famous one because we found his tomb and all kinds of treasures in there. Uh, I've been able to see that, and his heart and everything in the jar. But really, very little influence. Ramses I then starts the 19th dynasty. He rules one year. His son, Sethi, was next. And then Ramses Second who had 92 sons and 106 daughters, and very boastful about all his battles. He built these huge hallways here with these pillars in Karnak and uh, well-documented uh, records of his battles with the Hittites. Pictures of the battles here made it sound like he was the victor, but actually the Hittite version of the same battle says that he was lucky to escape with his life. So, again, kind of making history fit your idea his favorite wife here was nefertari she's often seen in a much smaller scale as you can see right there by his ankles but nonetheless pictured with him again had a good relationship with him but on a small scale apparently here's a mortuary temple of ramses II on the west bank of the nile here in luxor you can see some of the big stones to give you an idea of how big these things are you can see him standing there On top of his feet. But very big. His son succeeded him. And in his records. This is the only record we have of Israel. In all of Egypt. The specific name Israel is mentioned. It is right here. That is the word Israel. In the Egyptian records. Here it says. Desolation is for Tehenu. Hadi is pacified. Plundered is the Canaan with every evil. Carried off as Ashkelon. Seized upon his Gezer. This is a whole list Of what went on. And here's how Israel is mentioned. Israel is laid waste and his seed is not. In other words. The northern tribes of Israel. Jerusalem was not touched. But the northern tribes of Israel were captured by Assyria at this time. The corrected timeline matches this up perfectly. This guy was reigning in 722 B.C. The same time that it's recorded that Israel is laid waste. So it must be a record from Egypt of the Assyrians conquering the northern tribes. Ramses III also talks about a battle with the sea people around 1200 BC, according to traditional dating. But again, it doesn't fit at all. He had a palace in the delta. On the back of the tiles, there was some Greek letters. The Greek alphabet doesn't come around until 800 BC. So all the evidence points that Ramses was fighting the Assyrians, and the sea people were actually the Phoenician army who were hired by the Assyrians. So again, just another example of a corrected timeline fits, where the traditional one doesn't fit. You can't have Greek writing when it's not there. Here is a relief showing Shalmaneser III, the battle with the Hittites from the 9th century BC. Then from 700 BC on, there is absolutely no question about Egyptian chronology. It all fits, it lines up in the Bible, it's all good. Whether it be from Egypt, from Israel, the Assyrians, the prophets predicted that Egypt would fall, that it was going to be destroyed. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. 2 Kings 18.13 says that there were Israelite prisoners going into exile under Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. Well, this king carved a king list in the Hittite capital here. He wrote of a letter to Akhenaten, of Egypt, who is uh, sated in the 14th dynasty B.C. But Shalmaneser III of Assyria, which we just read there in Second Kings, records a battle against him in the 9th century B.C. So again, an example that the traditional dating does not work. Shalmaneser III receives tribute from the Israelite kings, according to Second Kings 9. The Bible dates Jehu around this time. Therefore, the Bible and these letters also agree. The Bible also records the Assyrian king coming in and sticking hooks in Pharaoh Terhaka, 2 Kings 19.9. Again, Cush is often translated as Ethiopia. Terhaka would have been a contemporary of Hezekiah according to the corrected timeline. And yet the Bible says Sennacherib received a report that Terhaka, the Cushite king of Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. We see that that happens. Terhaka here, this is a statue of him from the 25th dynasty. And here it says in Ezekiel 29, The Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Speak and say, I will put hooks in your jaw. Well, there is a stella in, well, there was in the Cairo Museum, showing him holding two ropes, one being connected to Terhaka's chin just like the bible says. So again archaeology matches up to that. He was succeeded by his nephew here beginning the 26th dynasty, followed by his son Nico the 2nd, and Nico the 2nd is the one that Josiah came up against. And Nico then kills Josiah. He came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates. Josiah went out against him, but he sent messengers to him saying, "What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but Josiah doesn't listen, and as a result, uh, goes after him and he's killed. So, Necho was defeated by Babylon later, but he retains some power and imposed some tribute upon the Israelite king, Jehoahaz. Later, Eliakim takes over, changed his name to Jehoiakim, as Jehoahaz then is taken to Egypt since he was conquered by them as a hostage. Necho dies in 595 B.C., and uh, Hophra takes over, and that's the last one we're going to talk about. Pharaoh Hophra here, called Apres in Greek. This is a stela of his in Memphis, and the Bible predicted that he would be delivered to his enemies, right here in Jeremiah 44. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Here is a picture of one of his obelisks with these elephants underneath The last thing is the Bible predicted then that Egypt would be destroyed. It would come to its end here in Ezekiel 29. Here was one of the last kings before Alexander the Great comes in 322 BC and conquers them. We read in Ezekiel 30, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will destroy the idols and put an end to the images in Memphis. No longer will there be a prince in Egypt. And it said that it would be the lowliest of kingdoms. After Alexander the Great comes, there is no more kings that ever come into Egypt. It has never gained its power. So again, showing the reliability of the scriptures there. After that, we see the Romans come. Diocletian pillars are put up from there. After the Romans, we see the Islamic rule in Egypt. And recently, the United Arab Republic in Egypt. So this here just kind of shows you kind of a, a rundown Uh, review of the pharaohs that go there because you get a lot of names and sometimes it's hard to remember all of them. But what I hope you're taking away from this is the Bible lines up. And while the world mocks and says, oh, there's no evidence, yes, there is. You just have to keep the Bible as the foundation, the filter that you use to interpret archaeology. And if something's not lining up with it, you must be wrong. So if we do that, we're going to be able to have a better discerning spirit. When it comes to science, when it comes to archaeology, when it comes to the idea, is the earth flat? No, it's not. You have to have a discerning spirit and you go to the scriptures and you're going to see that things line up perfectly when you do that. So the timeline, when it's restored, fits perfectly. But this is why, as I said, that archaeology is off because all of archaeology is based on the pharaohs. The dates of Jericho, you have to go off of the pharaohs. So when you go to museums and you see that things are 9,000 and 12,000 years old, none of that has anything to do with carbon dating. It has everything to do with the pharaohs. You correct that timeline, and all the dates you see in your museums are corrected as well. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time.